All right, I'm excited about this morning. Uh, our text, if uh, you'll stand with me, is out of Titus. Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, 11 through 14. Word of God reads this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, in these moments as we talk about Christmas, as we talk about the coming, the appearing of Christ, his first and his second coming, Lord, I pray that you just turn our minds and hearts towards what is true and uh, what is eternally true, that in the midst of the hubbub and hustle and bustle of Christmas and the distraction and the busyness of our lives, Lord, I pray that we would be still in this moment and think rightly about you, the eternal God and deity and our Lord and King and Savior in our lives, and we would reorient our lives around the gospel. Thank you for your word. pray that it would go forth and not come back void. I pray that as I preach this morning, I would decrease because you, Lord Jesus, must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I asked my boys this week, I said, now you guys know what Advent means at this point? And I won't throw any of them under the bus to tell you which ones I was talking about, but one of them just said, not really. That was a little discouraging. And um, I said, well, what about you? Do the other one. And, and he said, yeah, it's, uh, it's about Jesus, uh, uh, his birth, and when he's going to come again. I said, how'd you know that? He says, because you always say it's about not only his first coming, but his second coming. I was like, all right. Um, one out of two is not bad. Um, but I want to tell uh, our church, give you a little context for Advent, is I wonder how many of us really understand uh, beyond the Advent reading, the lighting of some candles, there's a pink one, why? I mean, I mean what's going on with, uh, with Advent? Um, why are we celebrating it the way we are? And so let me just uh, give you just, just a quick run of church history from the early church forward. In the Christian calendar, the, the two kind of preeminent celebratory days, holiday days, have been Christmas and Easter. And um, obviously they represent the beginning of the earthly life and ministry of Christ, his birth, Christmas, and then his death and resurrection, the end of his um, earthly ministry and life um, it, it, uh, at Easter. And so we have these two days where we really celebrate uh, Christ's coming and then uh, the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb. And they kind of mark, you know, they're kind of the, 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 the they, they, they break our calendar into these two significant holidays. And, and both of them from the early church forward were thought so significant that we should take more than just a day where we show up and celebrate, but we should prepare our hearts for them. Um, this looks different from the early church forward. The season of Lent was very prevalent. The pr preparation for Easter Sunday, uh, where we again have uh, candles, and if you are with us ever during the Lenten season, we are blowing out a candle each Sunday on our way to Good Friday. We're blowing out those candles um, with the idea that uh, darkness is coming. They are going to crucify our Lord. And so we blow out a candle each Sunday uh, as we uh, consider, we have a personal Sabbath uh, where we consider what Christ has done. Oftentimes we enter a season of fasting um, to deny ourselves in the way Christ was denied for us. There's a lot of symbolic things we consider doing as a church to really, really deepen our understanding and appreciation for uh, what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. And then we get to Good Friday, we blow out that last candle and, uh, and, and we say darkness has covered the earth. 
we have crucified the Son of God. And then we come in three days later, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, and we light all the candles because it's as if um, death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen? It's because it has been. He rose from the dead. He's alive, and that's where we start our service. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, that's Easter, and that's Lent, preparing ourselves for that day so we can really be in that, and it not just be a fleeting day where we get together with family and friends and eat a lot of food, but something we consider that's meaningful to us uh, that gives us a deeper gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Christmas um, is a day, December 25th. It's, it's not necessarily historically the day Christ was born. It's a day that... Um, that was chosen, early church, to celebrate the day he was born, and largely because, A, it kind of splits the calendar in these two significant days that are a ways away from each other, but B, it's in the midst of the darkest time of the year. It's kind of the winter solstice. It's, it's either the darkest day or one of them of the whole year. And so the idea is that from the day Christ is born, he enters the darkness bringing forth light, and the days begin to get lighter on our way to Easter. And so December 25th was the chosen day we've celebrated for centuries in the church as the birth of Christ. And about the 5th century on, I'll skip some of the context for why this happened in the battling of some heresies that were going on at the time, but uh, the, the Advent calendar took shape, 5th uh, century in the church in Spain, and it took shape in way of uh, we're going to have a time where we come together and we spend, it was 12 days then, now it's become the four Sundays before uh, Christmas Day, where we spend time anticipating the Adventus, the, uh, that's the Latin word for parousia, which is the Greek word for appearing, the appearing of Christ. Now, hold that thought for a second, because some of you are thinking, well, the appearing is twofold, right? And the answer is yes. The prophets in the Old Testament declared many things about Messiah to come. Like in Isaiah 53, they said he's going to be led like a lamb unto the slaughter. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. They prophesied a Messiah to come who had to come to die in our place and for our sin. And certainly, Jesus came and did that very thing. There's over 65 specific, mind-blowing, undeniable prophecy of the Old Testament. I, I didn't know how to cover all those for you this morning, and so I'm not going to, but in my own study, it was just mind-boggling to think from how he was born to how he would die and everything in between that proves Christ is the Messiah. He's the long-expected one, and he appeared to us. Our text this morning said, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all. That was Jesus in his first coming. And yet the prophets also said, he will establish a kingdom over this earth, he will reign. He will bring peace. We sang about it. It said the lion will lay down with the lamb. We sang about it in our opening hymn. It said men will beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. There will be peace on earth. Many of our Christmas carols and hymns are sung with the idea of Christ's final reign in mind. It said he will come to bring judgment and to reign. So the Messiah's talk is going to come to die. He's going to come to rule. And you kind of read the prophets and you go, wait, which one is it? And the answer is yes. He will come to do both. What the prophets couldn't see that history would unveil is that there's a gap in between. He came to die. He will come to rule. And we live in a time in between. Paul calls it six times in his letters in the New Testament, his epistles, a mystery. It was a mystery to the prophets. They couldn't see the church age. They couldn't see this day between appearances where we live to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to the very corners of the globe. They couldn't see it. They thought he'd come and reign, and they knew he had to die, and they had some trouble putting that together. And we live in the light 
of his first coming and in anticipation of his second coming. And so Advent's a time we celebrate what has happened, that he has come. And we light these candles. And uh, Bill talked this morning about this first candle uh, being the, uh, the prophet's candle of faith. They prophesied with faith of the coming of Christ. The second candle we light will be a purple candle that will be the angel's candle of joy. They proclaim this message of joy. This pink candle will be the shepherd's candle of love that they went forth in love from hearing the message. And then that final uh, purple candle, which we'll light on the fourth Sunday, will be the magi's candle of hope. They went in hope of meeting the Messiah. And then we'll come together on Christmas Eve service, we'll light the white candle, which symbolizes, it's the Christ candle. It symbolizes the purity of the spotless lamb who's come to be sacrificed for our sins, amen? And so we do this as a time to not just light candles, not just do something look pretty, but to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ came to bring us hope, love, peace, and joy. And in his appearing, we have those very things. But we're also meant in this season, not merely to look upon what has been done, in his first coming, but to look what will be done in his second coming. And from the fifth century on, the first two weeks of the Advent season, of the Advent calendar, were spent focusing on his second coming. Tuning our minds and hearts towards the fact that the story is not yet done. He will come again. By the way, the hope of the gospel is not merely in what he has accomplished, but in the fact that he will come again. That's what Paul calls it in this text, the blessed hope of his returning. Uh, Jesus Christ said, we're going to see in a moment, that he will come again. If he doesn't, he's a liar. If he doesn't, the gospel is still uh, uh, cheap. It's worthless. It's, it's not good news. It ultimately must be fulfilled in his second coming. And so we hold tightly to the fact that he will come again. I'm going to show you in just a moment that it must happen. And we spend... We're going to spend the first two weeks looking at that second coming, thinking about what that means for our lives today, and then turning our attention to the first coming in the back half of the Advent calendar. So that's what Advent is. That's why we are taking time in a liturgical calendar to, se to celebrate it, because we believe it creates a stirring in our hearts, a deeper love and affection for Jesus Christ, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will ultimately do when he returns. So Jesus does say that he will return. Did you guys know that? Explicitly. Let me put a text on the screen out of Mark. When Jesus was before the high priest in Mark chapter 14, the high priest asked him, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? And Jesus' answer in Mark 14, 62 was this, I am, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Like that happens in Acts when they see Jesus Christ ascend to the right hand of God the Father. You'll see it with your eyes. They saw him ascend to heaven, and you'll see the, him coming with the clouds of heaven. You'll see him going, you'll see him returning. He says, I am he, and you're going to see me go, and you're going to see me return. In John 14, he tells, um, he tells his followers, I am going to go prepare a place for you. In the Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a room for you, and if I go prepare you, a room for you, will I not come back? to get you and to take you with me. That's his assurance, I will go away, I'm gonna leave you a helper. That's the chapter he's telling him about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will come back for you. The uh, uh, metaphor that uh, we get throughout the New Testament, the most prominent metaphor of the church is of the bride of Christ. Paul speaks about the church as the bride constantly, that the bride is being made ready for the day, the wedding day of the Lamb, when he will come back, the groom returns and receives his bride. So think about it. I've never been a bride, won't ever be a bride on this earth, other than metaphorically a part of the body of Christ. But as a bride, I can imagine that anticipation 
of there's been an engagement, there's been a betrothal. You are betrothed to a man that you love with all your heart, and you are longing for this day where he comes and he takes you away to be his. That's us. The very metaphor of a bride is the metaphor that we are being prepared to be taken away by the one we love to be with him forever in an eternal, unbreakable covenant. And we're to be delighted by that. We live in great anticipation. A bride engaged, there's, and by the way, I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling this last month. There is, there's no more picture of someone consumed by something than a bride who's engaged. I mean, she is consumed by the wedding date and all that that entails. And I think about it sometimes. Sometimes I feel sorry for them. But other times I think, I mean, I, that's, that's, that's supposed to be me consumed by the wedding date. I don't know, I don't have it on the calendar. No man knows the day or the hour. But Jesus said, know this, my return's imminent, Matthew 24. In fact, in fact you know when he said that? The disciples said, hey Jesus, when are you gonna come again? Here, let, let's, uh, let, let's write this down, give us the date. He said, no, I'm not gonna give you the date or the hour, but I'm gonna tell you this, there's gonna be a lot of tribulation, there's gonna be a lot of persecution, there's gonna be a lot of suffering for those who call themselves mine, Christians, who identify with me. But I'm gonna tell you, immediately after the distress of those times, you'll see one coming on the clouds as prophesied in Daniel. Old Testament prophet said he will come in judgment. Jesus said, you'll see me coming then. That's when he says, Matthew uh, uh, 24, 25, no one knows the date of the hour. But you be ready. In fact, he tells a story about uh, a parable of 10 virgins waiting on the, the groom and half of them fell asleep. And he says, don't go to sleep on me. I'm coming, you stay awake, you stay alert, you be ready. Okay? Um, uh, Acts, I think I've got this verse for you. Uh, Acts 1, 9 through 11. When Jesus had said these things about, to the apostles about being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, a cloud took him from their sight. The ascension, historically recorded, it happened exactly like he said it would when the high priest said, are you the Christ? And while they're gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Like they're just going, why are you stand looking? This Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He's going to come again. And by the way, uh, he says in Matthew, the whole world will see it. You won't have to guess. He says, be careful when people say, hey, the Messiah came. He's over here. Don't go running. When I come again, every eye will behold and every ear will hear that I'm here. You won't have to guess, okay? Um, Peter writes in his uh, second, second Peter, second epistle, he says the day of the Lord is coming. He's encouraging the early church under su suffering. He says, uh, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some consider slowness. And by the way, wouldn't we say, gosh, what's taking him so long? Peter's words ring true. He's not slow, he's compassionate. He's not wanting anyone to perish. This is a day of mercy. The gates are still open wide. Anyone can come. Whosoever shall come shall receive eternal life. He's merciful. There's still time for the lost to be saved, for the blind to see. But that won't last forever. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity. He says, uh, today's the day of salvation. He says, when the, when the author comes onto the stage, the play is over. A day's coming. He says, in that day, it will do no good to say, I choose to sit down when you can no longer stand up. He says, that day's not a day for choosing. That day's a day for recognizing which side you have chosen. 
Today is the day of choosing. Don't let it leave you. C.S. Lewis. Um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is at the end of his life. He says, there is now in store for me laid up the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will award to me on that day, the day he returns. And not just to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Like lived in longing of the bridegroom coming back for his bride. They lived in that anticipation. Hebrews 9, 27, I've got this one on the screen for you. 9, 27, 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's his first coming, will appear a second time. Is that clear enough? Not to deal with sin, he's already done that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the posture of a Christian. The posture of the Christian, the one who's been saved by grace through faith, who lives this life in eager anticipation of the return of their king. Jesus' second coming is just as sure as his first. I hope you're getting that. Paul would write many times over exhortations to the church um, that we will stand before him when he comes. 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will be judged on our stewardship. It's a time where Christ wants to reward the faithful for how they live, but the point is, he will come again. We will stand before them. There's a time of reward because he's coming, and he's given us a stewardship. He tells an entire parable out in Luke 19, the 10 mice. He's given us, the minus represent the resources that he's given us, the time that he's given us, the talent and the treasure. And he says, put it to work until I come back. Like, do, be about kingdom business. That's what it says, do kingdom work, and there's a return he longs to receive on his investment. And just as um, I'm reminded of uh, King Richard, Robin Hood and his men are so assured, they're so positive that he'll return that they spend their lives living a certain way in anticipation of his return. We're so assured that Christ is coming, it absolutely dictates the way we live our lives. Literally changes it. Because we're in the middle of the story and we know how it's going to end. And we want to live as those who are wise unto the times. Not blind to them. We've got revealed revelation. How about John's vision in Rev 19? He's on the island of Patmos at the end of his life, the beloved disciple. And he receives a vision. And the vision is of Christ in his second coming, clothed in white, feet like burnished bronze, the sword from his mouth. He's coming in judgment. It's one of the most vivid images in all of Scripture. And as a believer, it's, it's an image that is awe-inspiring. As a non-believer, it's, a, it's an image that's horrifying. Of when he comes in judgment. His second coming is as sure as his first church. And Paul describes the day in First uh, Thessalonians. I think I've got this one on the screen for you as well. First Thessalonians 4. Let's put that up. Look how he describes it. He describes it in these words. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's those who have died. Because we don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Like if death is the end, 
your grieving never stops for the loved one who has passed. But we don't want you to grieve. It's believers in the church. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Here's why. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He rose, 1 Corinthians 15 says, as the first fruits of the grave. Just as he rose, we will one day, we are in him, will one day rise. Amen? There's good news. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. One day a trumpet blows. One day there's a call. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then the dead in Christ, those who died believers, they will rise to me. They go first. Then we who are left on this earth are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. <laughs> wow. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's never a moment if you're a believer. The moment you're in Christ, he's in you. And there's never a moment you're not with the Lord. And this is how it's going to play out. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope that's what I'm doing this morning. Uh, I love what he says in 1 John chapter 3, 2, what John writes in his epistle. 1 John 3, 2, he says, um, we're not made like him yet. We are children of God now. But we're not yet what we will one day be. When he returns, we'll be made like him. Because we will see him face to face. The day is coming. We long for it. Let me, let me, take, let me take you through this. I had a, one of my good buddies from high school died this week. It was a tough week emotionally for me and my other buds. And we gathered from all over the country at his funeral. And, um, and we took time and we reflected on life and the brevity and how quickly it is passing. We reflected on our good friend, Parrish, who had passed. And, um, and we thought about what you're meant to be, the Ecclesiastes said, it's good to be in the house of mourning. We mourned, we grieved, and we thought about how are we living? What is this life really all about? And uh, during that time, uh, I was reminded of what the scriptures say is true of parish today and of anyone who dies in Christ. Let, let me say this. The, you need to hear this. If you have trusted in Christ, and ultimately I can help you, discern whether that's true of you, but we can see if that's true of you based on how you're living your life, but ultimately, only you and the Lord really know if you have trusted in Christ. Here, here's what happens when you die. I need to know this. The moment you breathe your last as a Christian, as one who is wholeheartedly trusted in the righteousness of Christ for your salvation, overwhelmed with the good news of the gospel. You've surrendered your life for him who surrendered his life for you. He is yours, he is your most precious gift and your life is his and you've trusted him. When you breathe your last, and I've been with many people in the last five years as they've breathed their last, and when that last breath goes forth, and no more breath enters their lungs. I know that in the very next moment, the air pushed forth from their lungs in the very next 
moment they were awakened into the presence of Jesus. He was there. They may have been looking at me or hopefully a loved one in those last moments, but when their eyes close and they breathe their last, the next thing they see is the light of Christ. Because Paul writes to be to depart from this world, this body, to be away from the body is to be at home with Christ. It's one and the same in that moment. He doesn't leave you when you depart from this body. You'll leave your body, but you'll be with him in an instant. You'll be with him. Immediately, your spirit is adjoined with Christ. It's called in the Bible, uh, paradise. Today, thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, we don't know a ton about that, but we know that you'll be with him. I know that Parrish is with the Lord. I had a chance to be with Parrish's nine-year-old son, who play, is friends with mine, who plays on our basketball team, and I said, do you know where your daddy is right now? And he said, where? I said, he's with the Lord. And that's, that's all you need to know. He's with the Lord Jesus. And listen to this. Listen to this. He's with the Lord Jesus. And, and, and believers, um, anyone who dies in Christ, with the Lord, anyone who dies who's not in Christ, in Sheol, Luke 16, separated from the presence of Christ, in an eternal separation. And those who are in Christ, with Christ, here's what happens, you're with him in this way, in this paradise spiritual sense, until the day of the blessed hope of his appearing. Until, 1 Thessalonians 4, until the trumpet blows, until the angel heralds his coming, until he comes. Now when he comes, something happens. The dead in Christ get to go first. The moment you're with him, you're with him in paradise until the trumpet blows, and then you're going to receive something first. And then those of us who are still here upon his appearing will join him in the clouds and receive what you have already received, which is a new body, which is a glorified body. Let me, let me read you about this body. Did I do a slide for this, Janelle? If so, just put it on the screen. If not, I'm going to read it. Here's what it says. I'm going to take that as an if not. <laughs> Listen to what it says. I tell you, brothers, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does, this perishable, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Because can we really fathom this? Not me. We shall not all sleep, meaning some will be interrupted in this life by his coming. But we'll all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on imperishable. This immortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's the anthem of the believer. That's why we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We know that at his appearing, we receive a body much different than this one that we will finally lay down, plagued with its sinful desires. We'll receive a body to be physically in the presence of Christ and his beloved in the kingdom that is established for all of eternity. And only the fool doesn't live these days in light of those days. What will we do in those days? Uh, Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, in those days, behold, 
God will be with man and man will be with God. It's a restoration of the garden. We'll be with him and and let me just read a few verses of what that looks like if you wanna know what the reunion of the saints will ultimately be one day. He says, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so there's this, there's just no more of, of, of that which is the result of sin in a sin-stained world. It won't be as we know it to be now. All that grieves, all that destroys, all that brings despair will all be gone. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. He's doing it now. We feel the first fruits of that, the, the putting off of our flesh and the taking on of the, of the Spirit, the being filled with the Spirit, the becoming like Christ. It's a process of sanctification, but it longs for glorification when the process is complete. And it says, then the angel showed me, Revelation 22, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God, the Lamb, will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a picture of us in a new city surrounding the throne of God. And and, and we're not just ethereal spirits worshiping. We have bodies. We're eating fruits from the trees. I'm sure there's some flag football going on around this time over here, and there's worship, and there's joy, and there's relationship, and there's celebration, and there's the unending experience of the mercy and grace of our Lord. Can you see that day with me? By the way, this is not like you got to work hard to find that anticipation or expectation in the New Testament. You'd be hard-pressed to read any epistle in your New Testament and not see the hope and the longing for the appearing of Christ. But I think it's pretty relevant to talk about this at least once a year in the Advent season because if I were to try to put my finger on the American church today, I would say a church lulled to sleep. A church not living in eager expectation of the coming of Christ. If you ask me why, my very simple cultural commentary is because we're so in love with this world. We're a a worldly church. We're a materialistic people. In in America, in our day, every every, every church history, different cultures, and the church in different ages struggle with different things. There's seven letters written in Revelation, the church at different times, having different struggles. We are a church that struggles with this world. We've made our homes here. We've gotten comfortable here. We've placed our identity here. We've longed for the security of mate- that material wealth brings, which is ultimately no security at all. But we've nestled ourselves in, and we've busied ourselves with the building of this kingdom. And so we live distracted, we're asleep at the wheel. I don't know that Satan has to do anything else to the American church, asleep in its material wealth. I don't know what it would take, probably a stripping of all that we hold dear, a stripping of our idolatry. Maybe God in his mercy would do that, but but if not, I hope it would be the Advent season that jolts us out of our consumerism 
that jolts us out of our temporal living for that which is fleeting, a kingdom that will be here today and gone tomorrow, for the one that will be established for all of eternity, that we might lift our eyes and live for eternity these days that are so quick to go. Paris's funeral, one of my buddies from high school from Dallas, I haven't seen him in years, he looked at me, tears in his eyes, he goes, God, it was like it hit him all over, you know, it was like it was coming in waves. Looked at me in the middle of the funeral, he goes, God, all that really matters is whether or not you love Jesus. It was just, in that moment, it was just hitting him like he was saying, all this other stuff that's consuming my life ought to pale in comparison to he who is come and he who is coming. Yes. That's Advent. We're meant to reorient our lives around the truth of the gospel. So that when he comes, and listen, it's not if, it's when. When he comes, how will he find you? What will you be doing? When he comes, will he find you laboring in the fields? delighting in the joy of Christ. You know what Titus said? I read this and it's been all over the place since. But he said this, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. Christ came in grace appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of his coming and his dying on our behalf, the gospel is meant to shake us loose of our worldly passions. Seeing the way he loved us first is meant to to bring about a Romans 12, 1, kind of like, okay, my life is an act of worship for you. To live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. In other words, that's motivated by the gospel. And then he says this, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the Christ. He came once and grace appeared. He'll come again and glory will appear. And those two bookends, looking backwards and looking forwards, is meant to compel us to live a life that honors God. Either way you look, what he's done, what he's going to do, they are equally inspiring to shake us out of our worldly passions, that we might live a godly life and a life that honors God. One of my mentors, uh, Tommy Nelson, told uh, me and the program guys some years ago about a, I think he was a man in his 50s, and he was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. And the docs told him that uh, they, they caught it, but not, not early enough. And it spread to his lungs. It was, it was too everywhere. They said, you probably have five or six years to live. And, of course, the men in the church rallied around this man. The man's name was Allie. The, the, the men in the church rallied around him. They, he kind of knew what was coming. And, and uh, boy, the next five years, this guy was the most intentional Christ follower you've ever seen in your life. All of a sudden, he was front row at Bible study. He never came alone anymore. He was bringing neighbors. Tommy said he was bringing guys out of the woodwork. Every time he showed up, he's just got a, a van load of guys in there. In the, and he was spending every waking second he could. He said he'd do a little hunting and fishing just to kind of stay greased up. But pretty much, he was in every waking second he could building a relationship with guys to share the good news of Christ. He said he just lived in such a way that it kind of shamed and inspired at the same time all the rest of us. And his day came, it was six years to the day. And Tom was with him on his deathbed, and, he, and uh, Tom said, said, said something to the effect of, I'm sorry that your life's ending short, something like that. And the man said to him, hey, Tom, I gotta tell you, 
this cancer has been the greatest blessing. He said, the greatest blessing in my life, without a doubt, is Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. He said, do you know the second greatest blessing in my life? This cancer. He said, the last six years, I really lived. And I don't know that I ever would have. Tom said, this man did more living in those last six years than the first 50 combined. Because he was living in light of his appearing. See, he had a little bit better idea of the date. We don't know the date. But only the fool lives as if he's not coming. And I end with this illustration. Uh, the news of John Allen Ch uh, Chow, I'm assuming Chow is how you pronounce his last name, I'm not sure, has been all over the news. You've probably seen it. Um, social media. If you hadn't, just over two weeks ago, November 17th, 26-year-old American missionary who was uh, shot with arrows, martyred on the beaches of North Sentinel, an island off the coast of India. He was there, uh, sent by an all-nations missions organization to share the gospel with a completely unreached people group, the, um, the Sentinelese. And uh, he's burdened for these people, this kind of tribal culture, one of the last of its kind, if not the last, 0.0% percent reached no 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 understanding no ever hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and when the news first broke the first words I read were that he was only able to stand on the beaches and scream to them that Jesus loves you and so do I before he was shot with arrows and my first thought was well shoot it didn't seem like he got very far like, like, like I had this first flush of uh, okay let me let me say this way this is harsh and this is not very pastoral and it this doesn't sound right, but my first thought was, that seems like kind of a waste. Like he yelled on the beaches in a language they don't understand and was shot. And I kind of thought, man, surely there was a better way. And then literally as I had those thoughts, verses began to flood my mind. <laughs> and, ver and the first verse that came to my mind was, Unless a, green of wheat, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit, but it, or it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And then I had another verse come into my mind that Jesus said, unless a man hates his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then I had another verse come to mind that said, Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever tries to Save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel, save it. It was like the Holy Spirit. Watch, and all of a sudden, I kind of dropped the spirit of, you know, critiquing the methodology and strategy of the missionary. And who knows? I don't have near enough information on what went into that moment to even play critic or judge. But I was overwhelmed in a moment with this. This 26-year-old loved Jesus enough to give his life for the sake of the gospel. And he loved the people he had never met enough to give his life for them. And the Lord hit me with that, and I thought about it for a little bit, and I was pretty convicted by the love of this 26-year-old with so much life in front of him to, to, uh, to live, so to say. And I began to read more of the story, and it said that he had actually tried to approach the island uh, two days before, but from his boat, he was shot at with arrows. He couldn't get close enough, so he had to retreat. So it kind of at this point would seem he knew he was going to be martyred. He knew if he tried to approach again, he would be killed. He obviously felt incredibly compelled uh, by the Holy Spirit to go forward. He goes forward on a kayak by himself two days later. Uh, but the night before he went, he wrote in his journal this. 
He wrote a note to his parents that said, Mom and Dad, you guys might think I'm crazy. Imagine getting this from your son or daughter. You guys might think I'm crazy. But I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry with them or God if they kill me. (laughs) And then his sign-off, journal, night before he dies, he wrote this. I hope this isn't my last note, but if it is, to God be the glory. You can say what you want about him. I'd say he was consumed with an Advent spirit. By the way, the secular world, if you they, they just see him as, as a sad tale and a tragic misunderstanding of how to, I mean, you know, all the commentary you get. And even in the Christian world, there's a lot of people sitting back and talking about all the ways it should have been done differently. Maybe so, I don't know. But I know there was a man who lived sold out for the gospel. And, and here's what he understood. John Piper said this about a missionary killed a few years ago. John Piper said, a guy who dies like that is a guy that believes there's something worse than death. <laughs> a guy that lives like that believes there's something worse than death, and he's willing to give his life so that others don't experience that which is far worse than death. He has such, a, such an assuredness of the blessed hope of the return of Jesus that he laid his life down. He has such an assurance of a day when Revelation 7 says they will be gathered around the throne, those from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, even the Sentinelese. And he could see that day, and that day consumed his present reality. It dictated the way he lived. And by the way, I don't think he wasted his life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being talked about all over the world right now because of his willingness to die. All over the world. Hard to go on the news, hard to go on social media. The gospel of Jesus Christ. What exactly is it? Why is it so important? Why are we taking And I have a feeling that more will rise up to go to the Sentinelese and to go to the unreached peoples of all the globe And as Tertullian wrote in the early church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I don't think he wasted it. But I do think there's a whole lot of Christians in the church today that are wasting it. I think there's a lot of American Christians nestled in comfort and security sitting in church week after week, that are wasting their lives. The world looks at chow and they say, foolish. And they look at the American Christian and they say, wise. Can I tell you what the scripture does? In the words of A missionary who was killed in much the same way, spears to the back as he tried to share the gospel in Ecuador. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Harvest, the Christ who has come is the Christ who is coming. Let's pursue him. Let's worship him. 
let's share the good news of his coming with the world around us. You and I may not be called to the Sentinelese, but we're called to live for Christ. Amen? Let's do it. And to God be the glory. Father, may we be a people broken over our sin, broken over the darkness in the world, broken over lost people who know no differently than the frustration and the deep unsatisfaction and despair of a life apart from Christ. And let us be heralds appointed in this day for the good task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And let that be our joy. Let us live lives consecrated unto you, not to check boxes, not so that you'll be more pleased with us, out of the joy of our salvation, looking back at your grace and looking forward to your glory. Let it be the natural response to the gospel. Let us be a people that are on mission, a people that are expectant, a people with a blessed hope of your returning. Let us be a gospel people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.